The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So we really do need the access to the individual level data. We need it needs to be anonymized so that no one is looking at any given individual but not just an anonymization is not enough. You need to have a privacy review of the findings to make sure that there isn't any leakage of, of personal data when you publish your article. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 16th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. On this show, we've discussed no end of proposals for how to regulate online platforms. But there's something many of these proposals are missing. Data about how the platforms actually work. Now there's legislation in Congress that aims to change that. The Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, sponsors by Senators Chris Coons, Rob Portman, and Amy Klobuchar, would create a process through which academic researchers could gain access to information about the operation of these platforms, peering under the hood to see what's actually happening in our online ecosystems, and perhaps how they could be improved. Today on the show, Evelyn Duick and I spoke with the man who drafted the original version of this legislation, Nate Persily, the James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. He's been hard at work on the draft bill, which he finally published this October. And he collaborated with Kuhns, Portman, and Klobuchar to work his ideas into the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. We talked about how Nate's proposal would work, why researcher access to data is so important, and what the prospects are for lasting reforms like this coming out of Congress. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 16th. Free the data. We wanted to begin, Nate, with uh, congratulations on how your draft legislation on researcher access to social media platform data has made it into the recently introduced Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. And we want to talk about that in some detail, but I think the best way to start might be to discuss how we got here and what the problem is that the bill is trying to solve. Um, You know, we often talk about transparency as being desirable, but it might be useful to be a little more specific about what kind of transparency we want. So let me just direct the question to you. What's the problem with platform accountability and transparency and what kind of transparency do we need to fix it? So let me give you a bit of the history here. And first of all, thank you all for having me on again. As, As you all know, I've been working for the better part of five years and trying to set up 
some institutional pathway for outside researchers to get access to data from the social media companies, particularly Facebook. And so Gary King at Harvard and I set up this group called Social Science One, which had the blessing of Facebook, but that we faced continuing sort of struggles in trying to get the kind of data that, that the firm insiders had access to and to give that to outsiders. We made a lot of progress and did make a large data set available, but because of legal concerns that uh, folks inside the company had, particularly dealing with privacy, it became I became convinced after a while that we need federal legislation to compel the large tech platforms to share data with outsiders. So that's sort of how we got as a very long uh, story truncated, you know, to a minute there. And so the pitch on transparency is to say the following, that first of all, transparency is not, not just about providing either the public or, or uh, researchers with access to firm information, the mere fact that transparency will happen, that the firms will be under scrutiny, will change their behavior. So that uh, just like any other institution or person that knows they're being watched, if a platform knows that they are going to have to share data with outsiders, it will affect uh, what they do. Now, we see the, the transparency uh, of the kind that's proposed in this bill to have three sort of audiences, right? The first is for the platforms themselves, <laughs> the hope is that, you know, th that if you have independent outside uh, analysis of the data, that it will actually help improve their products, whether it's dealing with hate speech, disinformation and the like. Um, if you have a team of outside researchers who will be able to do the work that they want to do, it'll have an effect on that. Second is that it will educate policymakers, right? So that there's all kinds of tech policy uh, proposals that are out there. The hope is, is that if we get the best information analyzed by the best people, it'll help inform uh, you know, what we can do to deal with hate speech and the like. And the third is the public in general, right? There's, there's a lot of conventional wisdom uh, sort of floating around there about the prevalence of things like hate speech and disinformation and incitement. But we really do not have a good grasp on the scale and character of these problems. And in order to get at that, we really need to uh, have access to the firm data. Yeah, I think one of my favorite quotes from you is one that you gave to Protocol about the Social Science One experiment or project where you said, I'm happy to be quoted saying this. This was the most frustrating thing I've been involved in in my life. Um, and you've done a lot of work on like election security and, and things like that. And um, and so that's really, really saying something. And I think it uh, it speaks to why federal legislation is, is is really necessary and how we came to this spot. So let's talk a little bit about then what the mechanism is that you're envisaging in this draft legislation that has been taken up. How would the law work and uh, what kind of access would it give us? Well, there are three components to the Coons-Portman bill, the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. Two of them build off of what I, was in my original proposal and then one which I also worked with them on. And to make a long story short, there are three critical components. The first is compelling the large social media platforms, internet companies to share data with outside researchers under a scheme that is administered by the FTC and the National Science Foundation so that the platforms would not have control over which researchers get access, uh, but they would have control over the data. Uh, so the data would reside at the firm and then researchers would have to go there in order to uh, have access. So that's the first part. The second is a response in some respects to what was has happened to the NYU Ad Observatory, and this is a uh, immunity, criminal and civil immunity for researchers who engage in scraping of publicly available data. 
uh, from the platforms. And the third part are a set of public disclosure obligations to the platforms that they have to do with respect to content, algorithms, and advertising. And so uh, there are sort of three different legs to the stool there. Um, the one that is most directly sort of growing out of my experience with social science one is the first one, which is trying to set up a kind of federally overseen research pathway that will allow outsiders to have access to the same data that firm insiders have. So platforms go around a lot of the time saying, you know, we agree that we need to be more transparent, but they often are limited in the transparency that they want to provide. And the reasoning is usually that, you know, it would infringe on users' privacy for researchers or the public to be able to see, you know, what everyone's posting and liking and messaging on Facebook and how they're behaving. And of course, in some jurisdictions, I'm specifically thinking of Europe here with a general data protection regulation, it would actually be illegal for them to release this data. And of course, all of this is thrown into particularly sharp relief by the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which involved researchers essentially using Facebook's research functions for purposes that they didn't acknowledge to Facebook on the, on the front end. So those concerns are pretty serious. And I remember having a conversation with you when you were working on this legislation that the privacy concerns were actually some of the most thorny stuff to work through. So can you explain what's wrong with the platform's arguments here? Like how, how do we get around these privacy problems? Well, in order to, to answer that, let me tell you a little bit about a, a conference I organized in Brussels years ago with the European data privacy folks and folks from Facebook and some of the Social Science One researchers. And at the time, the uh, GDPR was still sort of in its infancy, but you know, GDPR does have a research exception. And so part of the question was, well, does the kind of work they were trying to do with social science one, does that fit within the research exception? And the, the data privacy folks in Europe, the government folks, were making the argument to the Facebook people saying, look, you know, if you were to give, give access to Nate and others to the individual level data, you would have a good argument that that falls within the research exception and the public interest exception. But that kind of reassurance that you would have a good argument under GDPR is not the kind of guarantee that these platforms need in order to, you know, take the risk of giving some data out to, to outside researchers. And so, you know, it, it was in that conversation, I was like, look, the Facebook lawyers kind of have a point here. Well, I disagree with the Facebook lawyers interpretation of GDPR and the FTC consent decree and the privacy kind of components of that. Nevertheless, you know, they, I'm not the one who, who spent, who had to pay a $5 billion fine in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, but they did. So, so we need to make very clear what the sort of research pathway is, and the, the government has to be involved in specifying those rules, and correlatively, the immunity that the platforms will get as a result of making data uh, accessible to outside researchers. Now, I want to be clear. The, the, the legislation is is clear on this, but I want to make clear, you know, also as a potential consumer of the data, what 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 I'm sort of thinking here. The, the challenge that we faced with social science one with respect to data privacy was not that somehow people were going to start looking up like what, you know, Evelyn was writing on her her Facebook page or the stuff that she had seen. It was that if you had large data sets of user activity 
that someone could maybe match it up with some other data sets and then discover you know, what their, their aunt in North Dakota had been seeing on Facebook on a given day, right? That's kind of the, the crux of the privacy violation there. And so what we, the, the way that we deal with this in the act, uh, in the bill, is that the researchers are not allowed to take data out of the clean rooms at the company when they are analyzing it. And anytime they are, go, before they publish any data, there has to be a privacy review to make sure that there isn't leakage of individual level data. Right. And both the firm and the FTC will be in a position to, to review that. And, you know, my, my general view, and this is the, the tack that the, the legislation takes, is that we need to emphasize security in order to deal with these privacy problems, but not to take a hardline view that say no one except those who are inside the firm are going to be able to analyze individual level data. Outsiders need to let be able to uh, analyze it as well if, if you're going to try to get your arms around questions of hate speech, disinformation, and the like. And, and let me just, just one final point here, which is that it's not, the question is not whether the data will be gathered or whether the data will be analyzed. It is already being gathered and analyzed. The only question is whether the monopoly on those insights shall be enjoyed just by employees of the firms who are tied to the profit maximizing mission of the firm, or whether it's going to be expanded to outside researchers who have a, a more public interested motive. I'm not mathematically inclined and I haven't done stats for um, an amount of time that I probably shouldn't admit to. Um, but I know that one of the questions or experiences with social science, one was this trade-off between the level of anonymization to give to the data and the usefulness of the data. And I'm wondering sort of how that plays out uh, or how you're envisaging this playing out based on that experience with this regime that you've set up? Is that something that's going to be sort of kicked down the road to be dealt with with the FTC uh, as they go through the process? Or what was your experience with Social Science One and how does that trade-off play out? So the way that we dealt with this with Social Science One is that the, the what's known as the URLs data set, which is also called the Condor data set, uh, which is what Social Science One made available, is a data set of URLs. So it's not a data set of like, if you think about like an Excel spreadsheet, right? It's not as if users are the rows and then the columns are say things that they saw on Facebook or how long they saw it or interacted or things like that. Instead, the, col the, the, the rows are URLs. So like a particular New York Times story, let's say, or Breitbart story or whatever. And then the columns are like, the types of people who interacted with it by gender and age and to some extent location and in the US political affinity, which is actually an important caveat. But the idea is that you you learn a lot about the URLs themselves, not about the, it's not at the individual level, it's not at the people level. So the, so the first thing you gotta realize is, is that the only URLs that were shared uh, and this is also to prevent privacy leakage, were ones where the interactions were, you had over 100 people who had, had interacted with the, the URL. So it's not, you know, if you put up a, uh, a link to your Dropbox pictures, right, or Google pictures or something like that, and just a few of your friends look at it, they, they, we didn't want that in the data set. And so it's just the things that are over, say, 100 shares or so. The second thing is, you, since it's at the URL, URL level, um, all the data is aggregated. So if we say, you know, 50,000 women in the United States saw that, you know, saw or interacted with that piece of material, that's, you know, the number is 50,000. 
It's not as if we know what an individual person may have seen. Then in addition to it being aggregated, we added differential privacies, which is to say that there's noise that's added to the data so that you basically obscure, I mentioned before, like 50,000 women may have seen, but the, the true number is going to be somewhere between, I don't know, let's say 48,000 and 52,000 or something, just to make sure that if you combine this data set with other data sets, you wouldn't be able to figure out what a given person in a given location may have seen uh, on Facebook. Now, you, you are right to call attention to this because that makes the data less useful, but differential privacy is being used, you know, throughout social sciences um, and you can see it you know even in the census data so the census now has added differential privacy and, and the social science one data set is sort of using a similar kind of method and so it, it's a way of, a, of ensuring that you can't find out whether any given individual is part of the data set or not now how does that relate to the legislation and what we're proposing so the idea here is that while it does say that you have to comply with various legal provisions uh, related to privacy um, the whole point of emphasizing security and the clean rooms and the like is to make sure that people will have access to uh, individual level data now one of the things you realize when you deal with facebook data is that something like anonymization is almost like a worthless categorization because you can't really if you think about your facebook feed and if i took your name out of your Facebook feed, right? I could still figure out it was your Facebook feed because the data is so rich as, you know, that's what social media data is. I know I would know your friends, information, that kind of thing. So we should do anonymization so that there's, you know, when you look at the data set, you can't figure out what Evelyn or Quinta's, you know, what they interacted with. But we do have to have the data at the individual level in order to grapple with some of these questions. And let me be clear, since there's, I think, a lot of confusion about this, even among policymakers, let me explain why we really need the individual level data. Most of the problems that we're trying to grapple with online, like disinformation and uh, hate speech and incitement, are not problems for the average users of these platforms, right? And, and that, you know, most of the time when we talk about this, we think, oh, well, Facebook is awash in disinformation, awash in hate speech and the like. But for most users, that is not their experience. However, for a substantial minority of users, it is a big problem. And so you need to have large enough sample sizes in order to get at those 1% problems sometimes, right? To really understand how disinformation is traveling throughout the platform or to understand how big a deal uh, hate speech is. And you cannot rely on users to volunteer their social media data because the people who are in the kind of QAnon echo chambers are not the ones who are going to be saying, here, take a look at my social media feed. So, so we really do need the access to the individual level data. We need, it needs to be anonymized so that no one is looking at any given individual but not just an anonymization is not enough. You need to have a privacy review of the findings to make sure that there isn't any leakage of, of personal data when you publish your article. So we're going to go back to the transparency aspect in just a minute. But I, I also want to talk about your point about the second prong of the bill regarding criminal and civil immunity for researchers scraping data that's publicly available. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's necessary? So... Over the summer, Facebook shut down and took, shut down the accounts of several researchers at NYU University who had been had uh, 
created a plugin so that they could gather data on Facebook's advertising platform. Facebook shut down these accounts because they said that the plugin violated privacy because there was a risk that you might be able to figure out something about your friend's content based on the plugin. The NYU ad, ad folks uh, disagree with that. They actually had Mozilla perform a privacy review of it to ensure that that was not what was going to happen. But from the Facebook side, their view was that, look, there's, there's too big a risk here. And, uh, you know, we know what happened with Cambridge Analytica and we want to prevent that again. All right. So, so that was their, their response. And, and we're still at an impasse. Uh, and I've been trying to, to work a little bit to try to convince Facebook to reinstate the NYU observers NYU ad observatory. But in the wake of the Haugen revelations, I think that they've been kind of paralyzed. And so that's another component of this legislation. And that is that if you are a researcher who is gathering data by scraping the platforms, you may not be criminally liable under the CFAA, Computer uh, Fraud and Abuse Act, and you not cannot be civilly liable, meaning Facebook cannot sue you uh, and, and get damages because of your, of your collecting data like this. And so part of the, the reason this is an important part of the legislation is that it's all well and good to have a secure research pathway for people to, for researchers to analyze data, but you do need these external checks. You need some, some way on the outside to validate the data. And that's one of the real values that the uh, NYU folks and others have contributed here is to try to, you know, get a sense of what's happening on the platform without the platform's consent, right? Uh, or just to scrape uh, enough accounts so that you can understand what people are seeing on Facebook. And so that's the idea. Now, it's still going to be the case that you have to allow websites to shut off access by some people, right? So if someone is trying to hack into Facebook for one reason or another, that Facebook's still going to be able to terminate their accounts. But, you know, there's been real concern that particularly with the, with the CFAA, that there might even be criminal liability if you start violating these terms of service. And, and this clarifies that, no, no, you don't have to worry that your freedom or property is going to be taken as a result of this. Uh, and so I think it's a, a kind of common sense move forward. This is also, if, if you're familiar with the story of Aaron Swartz, who tragically killed himself after being prosecuted under CFAA uh, for scraping JSTOR, the academic publishing platform, um, there was something called Aaron's Law, and this is sort of a version of that to try to immunize researchers that are just trying to scrape the platforms for research purposes. So can I just clarify something? Because I was also thinking about this relationship between, you know, scraping at the moment is kind of the only tool that we have to get access to data because the companies are so opaque and keep everything so tightly held. But there are, you know, harmful uses for scraping as well. One of the most prominent that people might know about is Clearview AI, which scrapes a whole bunch of people's pictures for facial recognition technology. And so if the primary purpose of keeping the scraping in is to ensure that the data disclosures that are given under the access regime are accurate and trustworthy, is there any other mechanism for verifying those disclosures? Like if there is still this lingering distrust, what other measures are there to make sure that those disclosures are accurate and trustworthy? So the legislation also has a third set of provisions which will require public disclosures and, and public access 
to, to data so that something like the Google Trends API or feature, right, that allows you to figure out, you know, how many times has someone, you know, searched on Lawfare in Google in the last uh, week or two, right? That, that, that is the kind of thing that is also mandated by this act to require the platforms to develop public tools on that. Now, so, so that can also ver help verify what's happening in the, in the clean rooms and what's given it access. But you could say, well, what if, if the platforms lie public, they could lie publicly, they could lie privately. But that's where you know punishment comes in, and that they, there are fines in the in the statute. The, the F, that's why I vest uh, decided with the legislation I was developing that the FTC was the right place to lodge this, so that you know these platforms, if they do lie, they will be punished, and it will be an unfair trade practice. And then in in the Coons Portman version of the legislation, they actually tie Section 230 immunity to this. So the you know Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which makes the platforms immune for user-generated content, they will lose that immunity if they end up basically being fraudulent in the data that they're providing or if they refuse to provide the data. So I want to ask about the specific people who are allowed to access this data and who are receiving immunity for accessing public data. So you're, you restrict it in the legislation to, or you restrict it in your draft and uh, the Coons, Klobuchar, Portman bill restricts it to qualified researchers, uh, which is basically limited to university affiliated researchers. And that obviously cuts out a lot of people. And I, I will, as a journalist, I will speak up for the journalists here. <laughs> um, it seems to exclude journalists, you know, many of whom have done some of the most important work in bringing to light harms from social media. So I'm curious for your thinking on, on why you made that decision. And I also wanted to push you specifically on the immunity aspect, because it seems to me that if, you know, if this bill is successful, Congress passes it, President Biden signs it, then we have legislation on the books that is explicitly excluding the press from immunity for accessing publicly available data, which if I kind of put on my press freedom hat, seems potentially concerning, especially given that there have been a number of uh, threats from state governments toward media organizations for scraping publicly available information. So can you talk us through your reasoning there? So good. Let, let me let me clarify each part of the, the proposal. So you are right that the for the clean room access, that it's just university affiliated researchers. And that that was a deliberate decision. Part of the reason is I can't figure out how to define what a journalist is, right? <laughs> Journalists can't either. So that's well, but enough. that's that's part of the problem. So when you were saying you're sort of speaking on behalf of journalism, well, tell me who you're speaking on behalf of. Are you speaking on behalf of Breitbart also? Are you speaking on behalf of some individual who has a blog, right? And so it's not it's not that I've got hostility <laughs> toward journalists to have access. I just don't know how to do it. And especially if if the privacy concerns are as acute as we're all suggesting they are, then we have to delineate something between the research qualified researchers and the general public. And so one of the one of the good things that Social Science One did is it negotiated with Facebook over many months a research data agreement that would allow for university, basically the researchers who are part of that data access regime are now nested in a set of legal relationships with the university so that we prevent another Cambridge Analytica. And so 
you know, and, and universities have, have IRBs and universities have, you know, they can discipline their, their employees, their researchers, if they engage in malfeasance. And so the idea here is that the universities will be on the hook in, in order to police privacy violations as well. Uh, with journalists, you know, I just I just don't know how to define. I'm, I'm open to having journalists uh, be a part of this regime, but I just don't know how to distinguish between the New York Times and Breitbart on this, and so I didn't include them. However, for the scraping, it actually is does explain. It, it goes beyond university uh, researchers when it comes to the scraping immunity that would extend to journalists who are doing this in the public interest. However, it would not extend to Clearview AI. Uh, just so we're clear, because it has to be uh, in the public interest without, you know, connection to profit or or, or the like. Uh, so that the, the the second and third parts of the of the legislation would apply to journalists as well. But yeah, I I, I don't know how to how to give journalists access to uh, you know the, you know or how to define uh, who journalists are for purposes of the research protocol. The way we dealt with this with um, Social Science One is we simply said that the outsiders, and this could apply to think tanks as well. So Pew had had asked us, "Hey, what about us? We're just as good as as university professors." And my answer is, "Yes, you are. Um, so you should pair up with some in order to do the research." And so that's what I could envision coming forward. I still don't think they would have access to the clean rooms themselves, but they can pair up with academics in order to do the investigation. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. 
I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about the role of the FTC here, because the bill creates a bunch of responsibilities for, for the FTC, including overseeing the whole scheme, and as you mentioned, bringing civil enforcement actions if platforms don't comply. So I guess a preliminary question is, you know, the FTC is already significantly underfunded and outgunned yeah. when it comes to these showdowns with these massive corporations. They issue the $5 billion fine and Facebook's like, let me just check my back pocket. So where's the money going to come from for, for the FTC? And do you think that's going to be a roadblock in the bill's passage from here? So the bill, the bill authorizes appropriations. The bill itself cannot appropriate based on where it's going to, you know, committees and all that. But yes, we need to double the budget of the FTC as a general rule, given, you know, if we're going to heap the, not just these obligations, but other uh, tech watchdog obligations on them. And it is something that, you know, when I've spoken to people at the FTC, they're like, yeah, this is great. It's like, well, how are you? It's like, what should we not be doing that now we're going to have to sacrifice in order to now oversee this massive research operation? 
And so the NSF is also in the in the Portman Coons bill. The NSF is also a part of the the bureaucracy that would administer this. But you're right. You need we need to make sure that the FTC has adequate money now. One other objection I get sometimes is like, well, why should the FTC be in this business? Not like they're the National Academy of Sciences or something. And, you know, the answer is you sort of go to war with the army you have. And the FTC is the part of the federal government, which is now most involved in policing privacy violations. Right. Um, And so that's why they were involved in Cambridge Analytica. They're also there in order to police fraud. And so since the privacy concerns are such so sort of top of mind of people in thinking about outsider access and transparency, it makes sense, I think, to have the FTC be the one that will administer this problem. If we had a digital services agency or something in the United States, I'd be like, great, let's vest it with that. And there are proposals that are out there to do something like that. And I've had some senators since I proposed this. Come, come out and, and suggest this to me. But that seems to me like four years away. We can't wait for us to develop a new cabinet level department or new independent agency before we take action. My hope is, and it might be Pollyannish, is that we can, if, if Congress were to pass this sometime in the next five, six months, that then it would be up and running for the 2024 election. And, and I do feel like that's the, that's we gotta make sure that we have some structure in place to analyze data in the run-up to that election, uh, because uh, otherwise uh, we're going to be sort of too late. The, the other thing to think about is you just think about research in this in this field generally, is that as we move toward encryption and and private messaging platforms, right? We, we kind of need to study Facebook before it's irrelevant, right? Because the the if they tie up Messenger and Instagram and what and WhatsApp all together there will be a greater share of the kind of information that we're concerned about. It's going to be taken on encrypted platforms, let alone on Signal, Telegram, and these other things. And so we really do need to, to set things up soon in order to, to study you know, Facebook and Instagram and, and their effect on democracy and public health and the like. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the process here. I'm just curious, how does a, a bill that you wrote make it from your desk to the Senate? What did that process look like? <laughs> Well, you've seen Schoolhouse Rock, right? Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'll say, you know, it's usually I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol or Hill. Or danced. That's my takeaway. It danced from your desk to, uh, <laughs> to Congress. I, I'm just a bill sitting here on uh, in Silicon Valley, right? So I worked on this for about eight months. Uh, had some lawyers help me out with it, privacy lawyers, sent it out to some of the interest groups, sent it out to academics. And I decided when Francis Haugen was testifying before Congress, I'd been holding on to this because I was true to character, insecure about you know whether I was dealing with all the potential objections to it and the like. But when Francis Haugen was testifying in the Senate, I said, you know what, I'm going to release the the bill. The you know I've been through 25 iterations of this. I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to say. Look, if Congress is actually serious about dealing with these problems, this is what it should do. And, and I put it out there and it got a lot of play. And then then when I when I did that, um, a lot of the Senate staff then talked to me and then I testified in the Senate about, uh, I don't know, three, four weeks later. And so it, it just required me to have enough confidence that I wouldn't be completely pilloried <laughs> uh, for this proposal. 
and I and I felt that the the timing was was right because of the Haugen uh, revelations. Because you know, part of the point here, and in, in all the op eds I've written since then, I've tried to emphasize this, is that we shouldn't have to wait for whistleblowers to blow their whistle before we can find out what's happening on these platforms, right? And so one of the you know interesting things about Haugen's testimony is that she revealed the kind of um, studies that are going on inside Facebook, and they're exactly the kind of studies that we would like to do on the outside of Facebook. And um, we should have access to that data. So, you know, we should be able to reanalyze what uh, they did in this Instagram study and whether it, you know, hurts teen girls, right? Um, we should be able to get a sense of how big a deal certain, you know, accounts have been in spreading health misinformation or, you know, how, how big a deal health misinformation on COVID has been on the platform. Um, because I can tell you, when you talk to the Facebook people, they think this has been totally blown out of proportion, that people misunderstand what was in the in those documents. And like, and my answer is, all right, if they misunderstand it, let's let's see the goods, right? But you can't, no one is going to trust, you know, Facebook or Google researchers who are doing and publicizing their own firm research unless you can evaluate uh, the data and replicate the findings. And so um, we just need to have some outside ability to do the same kinds of things that were revealed in the Haugen testimony. It's fascinating, I think, the dynamic between the Haugen revelations and political momentum, because, I mean, from my from where I'm sitting, you've been saying all of these things for years and years, um, as, as many people have, and there was nothing, you know, particularly shocking for people that have followed the social media space in the Haugen revelations, and yet it did really create this window. And so, I mean, it's great that you capitalized on it, but I, uh, I can imagine, you know, some people feeling some frustration that that's what it took, um, yeah. and, and the general sort of optics around that, I think, are really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's right. But you know, these policy windows happen, uh, you know, rarely. I mean, if you think about the, the, I think Josh Tucker and I in our piece for Brookings have have a line about this, which is if you look at the kind of phases of outrage. I mean, we've been in this perpetual tech clash for you know four years now or something. But you know, the 2016 election was a watershed moment, and all the revelations that came out about that. Then the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which of course was related in some ways to 2016, but followed on it later, was another window, obviously led to the $5 billion fine and the like. And so, and then now the Haugen revelations, I think, are a third sort of moment in the analysis. Now, of course, a lot of this is based on things that are happening in the US. Of course, if you're in Myanmar, right, you're, or the Philippines or India, there have been all kinds of moments like this throughout the last four years. But in terms of capturing the attention of U.S. policymakers, I think these have been critical stages. And so I just wanted to release it when when people were most focused on it. And the other thing that I've realized here is that how hungry people are for some kind of thing that looks like a law, <laughs> you know, that, that every, we have we have more white papers and reports than we know what to do with at this point. But the, the real difficulty is trying to write down in legislation what you're trying to do. And that's why it took so long for me to, to work on this. But this, this is, I think, I hope a lesson for people, whether it's CDA 230 reform or whether it's privacy or antitrust or advertising or protecting kids online, that, you know, write the bill. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the hardest thing to do, but write the bill because then you'll have to deal with these terrible trade-offs that all tech reform involves. And so, as you were saying before, you know, trying to trying to figure out how do you deal with the, you know, genuine privacy concerns? Well, you can you can write a white paper that says, oh, and of course, privacy needs to be protected. 
Well, but that's not enough, right? And 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 so um, we really need to write down uh, in legislative verbiage uh, the kind of regulations that need to be passed. Right. Yeah. The bill is not just section one. Platforms should give researchers access to data. There is no section two. Um, so because lawyers, uh, lawyers will lawyer. So let's talk a little bit about the constitutionality of the bill, uh, because there's this sort of recurring pattern, I think, at the moment where a bill is introduced into Congress about social media, and then there's a flurry of tweets and blog posts about how it's likely to violate the First Amendment. And some of those arguments I find more compelling than others, you know, in the context of bills like Klobuchar's and Lujan's Health Misinformation Act of 2021, which would try and create an exception to Section 230 for medical misinformation. It seems to me to be obviously correct that there's real First Amendment issues uh, there. But there's also arguments around the idea that even basic transparency requirements would be unconstitutional because they would either amount to sort of compelled speech or they would chill platforms, content moderation decisions, um, which are protected editorial judgment. And Quite frankly, I find those arguments kind of terrifying because the idea that the First Amendment would block uh, even basic disclosure requirements, you know, things like uh, that we have in in the context of like campaign finance regulation and, and countless other areas of the law, it seems to me to be a very sort of dangerous and deregulatory direction for the doctrine to take. But there is some support from this, uh, both in the academy and at least one lower court decision. So I'm curious for your take on this as a constitutional law professor as well, whether you're at all nervous about the constitutionality. So my basic view here is that if this is unconstitutional, then all tech regulation is unconstitutional, right? If we can't get disclosure out the door, <laughs> then it's not clear to me whether 230 reform or other antitrust stuff, stuff that's even more heavy handed, whether that would be constitutional. However, you, you accurately characterize the argument, which is that, look, if you think that Facebook and Google are like the New York Times and Washington Post, if you were basically having the government force these, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, or for that matter, a, a private association like the NAACP, right, if you, if you were forcing these First Amendment bearing actors, First Amendment rights bearing actors to uh, be subject to this level of regulation by the government, there would be serious potential violations of speech and association. And so you got to get over, one has to get over the hurdle of thinking about these companies as if they're private clubs or small startups. And, and so this is where this kind of argument dovetails with the antitrust argument, which is to say, look, the Facebook and Google are different types of companies that have massive control over the information ecosystem in the US and around the world. As such, they can be subject to some kinds of regulations that if they were a small, you know, if they were the Boy Scouts, they would not be able to be subject to. And, and that's, that's the argument. In addition, you know, these are not content-based regulations, right? It's really just about providing for some kind of disclosure, the same kind of, you know, you mentioned campaign finance, but you could make it, you know, with, with respect to the banks and financial reporting or, you know, drug companies and the like, there's all kinds of reporting requirements. And so you you are also right that the Supreme Court has been coming down hard on some of those rules. Uh, in Citizens United, you did have eight votes for the disclosure provisions in there on corporate disclosure. So at least as of Citizens United, that seemed to be the direction the court was going in. However, last year, there was this Bonta decision dealing with a kind of um, disclosure provision in California law for, for certain nonprofits and taxpaying entities. And the court was coming down hard on, uh, you know, and striking down that law. 
Uh, and so, yes, there is a possibility here. But, I, but this is where I think the conservative contempt for the social media platforms may save legislation like this and mute their otherwise sort of doctrinaire commitments to, fir to the First Amendment. So whether it's Justice Thomas or Justice um, uh, Kavanaugh or some others, Thomas in particular has shown hostility. He's even suggested that these platforms might be places of public accommodation that could be forced to carry a point, opposing points of view so that they, they would be sort of forced to respect the First Amendment. If that is true, then I think a disclosure is a much less uh, severe intrusion on the platform's First Amendment rights. And so I think you, we might be saved by the conservative hostility of the platforms based on their belief that the platforms, you know, are run by a bunch of liberal Californians that are silencing conservative speech. And if that's true, part of the answer is say, well, let's figure out whether that's true. And a disclosure regime like the one we're, we're proposing here is a way to figure out whether, you know, they are silencing conservatives as many on the right think they are. Yeah, I found the Bonta decision pretty scary as well. And I think, you know, there are some people that would say in response to your, you know, answer to the last question, um, yeah, actually, maybe all regulation of these First Amendment actors is unconstitutional, which again, I, I would find a, an unsatisfactory place yeah. to land. Well, let me say one thing on that. So Eric Goldman and I did a did a, a seminar here at, at Stanford where he basically made that strong First Amendment argument. And he ba he said that, we can't even have a regime which decides to verify whether the platforms are obeying their own content moderation rules, right? So that if they are, uh, you know, saying that they're taking down, uh, I don't know, nudity or something like that, or what, or, or self-harm videos or something, and and if you had a government law that said, all right, if that is your your rule, then we want to verify and hold you to account that you're doing that. He said, no, even that is a violation of the First Amendment rights because Facebook and Google enjoy the same rights that that the Washington Post and New York Times do, and that if you had the government essentially having rules about um, whether they are obeying their own content moderation practices, that that would be sort of interfering with their editorial judgment, right? And it's like, all right, well, you know, if if if, if you believe that, then there's no there's no tech regulation that I think is going to pass muster under that theory. But but I, I have a piece coming out in in Jeff Stone and Lee Bollinger's book uh, on um, First Amendment and and the internet, or I don't know what they're calling it, where I I say that look. I mean, my view is that we should not force the platforms to um, welcome all comers, that they need to be able to regulate the platform environment. And so I would give them great latitude in doing that, but I don't think they have a First Amendment right against that kind of uh, regulation. While there are some really bad types of regulation as we're seeing in Florida and elsewhere, where they're you know, prohibiting the platforms from engaging in certain types of content moderation, I am worried that some of the extreme First Amendment arguments that the platforms are making in those contexts would then lead them to, you know, try to strike down these kind of neutral uh, laws that are promoting disclosure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that there's sort of a really all or nothing kind of approach in the debates at the moment where, you know, the platforms are saying you can't touch us. And uh, by contrast, places like Florida and Texas are saying, you know, your your common carriers are completely regulable. And hopefully uh, we can find something 
somewhere in the middle that's more productive, a more productive way forward. But I guess then zooming out to ask you sort of a more bigger picture question about what Congress should do in this space. I mean, let's say we can agree and, and people don't that transparency is, is pretty low hanging fruit and hopefully uh, constitutional, or at least even if you view it as a political matter, um, there should be bipartisan uh, agreement, whether in Congress or on the court that, you know, there's deep distrust of the platforms and everyone really wants to know what are they actually doing and are they actually being honest in what they say they're doing. Um, but there's a whole slew of other proposed bills on the Hill. Um, and I guess there's this question of what Congress should do when it's thinking about constitutionality. And I'm curious if you have a view, because on the one hand, they might think it's really hard to pass legislation at the moment. It takes a long time to draft legislation, as you just said. So we don't want to put all this effort in and pass something that isn't ambitious and doesn't achieve much. Um, And a lot of the bills that people think are certain to survive constitutional challenges are, are, are pretty unexciting. But on the other hand, they might think it's really hard to pass legislation at the moment. We don't want to go to all this effort and pass something that's immediately struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. And so there's this tension of like how ambitious should Congress be if there's only really one bite at the apple? And I'm curious if you have sort of a strategic uh, view on that. And like when you're looking at the court, it's a question of like, do you feel lucky? Right. And that's why I think disclosure is the safest course forward. And because I think of the kinds of things that you're thinking about, take, for example, something that I also think has a likelihood of passing, which is something dealing with kids online uh, in the wake of the Instagram controversy that look, we're all, you know, we're all want to protect the children from what's happening online. But as you start unpeeling the onion about what the, that, that proposal might look like, it really, if you introduce age verification as part of you know, the internet, <laughs> that basically is a way of trying to remove anonymity. Uh, now, I do think anonymity is part of the big challenge that the internet is, is posing to democracy. But if you basically force the large platforms not to uh, allow for anonymous speakers or, or, or force people to you know, verify who they are, that will change the dynamics online uh, with the platforms. And so that's something that I think you know, could, be, could be more vulnerable to a constitutional challenge. I think that, but, uh, but I think this is about as uh, constitutional as anything that we could propose, in part because Citizens United does, you know, say in the context of where it's saying that these corporations have huge First Amendment rights to do unlimited corporate advertising and the like in advocating for the election and defeat of candidates. But at the same time, it, it upholds all the disclosure provisions of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. And so I think we are still in that world where disclosure is seen as less First Amendment threatening than other kinds of regulation. But if I, I think on your larger question, so like, what do I see in the offing here, right? I think that the other kinds of legislation that are out there are, you know, the national privacy law, which I think also would not, I think that would probably be constitutional. There are a lot of bad ways to do it. And you mentioned GDPR before, there are a lot of problems with GDPR. But you could see privacy, if the privacy law that's been kicked around by Christian Gillibrand and um, I think it's Senator Cantwell also has a privacy law out there. You can see that being combined with transparency to, to push things forward. Some stuff on advertising in particular, there is a provision in this bill on, on advertising, but I think there's a lot of sort of appetite for regulating the, the, the ability of the platforms to offer micro-targeting. 
I actually think that taxing of advertising revenue is something that has not been explored enough, but that doesn't solve some of the content moderation problems. It's just something, if you really wanted to go after these platforms, that's the way to do it. And similarly, you know, there's a lot of interest on the antitrust side, whether it's legislative or getting the FTC and DOJ involved. So I think all of those, those are all the kind of content neutral uh, attempts. And then there's the content specific changes that people want to make to CDA 230 or to deal with kids or to deal with hate speech and the like. Those are the ones that are most likely to face constitutional challenge. But again, part of the pitch for this kind of researcher access is to say, that if you want to be informed about the scale and character of the problem that you're trying to solve with these other pieces of legislation, we need better data. And so we need to get, you know, the, the country's scientific community involved in, in analyzing this stuff in order to validate whether what the platforms are saying is true or not. Because, you know, take something like the, one of the big questions these days uh, and it comes out, and you can see it in the Haugen papers as well as in the legislative response to it, is how big a deal are the algorithms in serving up problematic content, right? Because most, so much of, of the debate has, has been on, you know, the, this notion that what they're trying to do is to hook users and to keep them engaged. And so therefore the algorithm is, is sending you salacious content. And so therefore it favors lies over truth. It favors hate over more traditional commentary and like. The platforms completely disagree with that. They say that is that is empirically false, that they are not actually favoring the most kind of problematic content with their algorithms. Whoever's right in that debate, is it's a critical question to answer um, because a lot of legislative and platform interventions are going to depend on that. And so we need to get outsiders to validate what the platforms are saying before we can really take action. As you mentioned, we've kind of been in this posture of tech lash really since 2016, since the fall of 2016. So I guess uh, five years now. And yet, you know, there's so much energy on both sides of the aisle in Congress to do something. And yet nothing is being done. And obviously, you know, this this bill of transparency is a pretty good pitch. It seems like it could appeal to people on both sides of the aisle for the reasons that you set out. But I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, if you can speak to your experience and impression of Congress's capacity in these issues as you've been interacting with with members and staffers over this bill. Um, you know, there's there's always a lot of ridicule over how much Congress doesn't understand technology and silly sounding questions. Do you think that Congress has the skills that it needs to regulate in this area? Well, I think it's a lot better now than it was three or four years ago when Senator Hatch was asking how basically Facebook makes money, right? And Mark Zuckerberg responded, well, we sell ads, Senator, right? So we've moved a lot from then. And and Cecilia Kong has a piece in the New York Times this weekend that basically makes that point. I mean, similar to your point, though, she does say that the, you know, Congress is more sophisticated now in understanding what the hell's going on, but they still haven't passed anything. Um, but that's also because these, uh, you know, if you're dealing with the content questions, the, the the issues are themselves complex, but also the positions of the parties are, are kind of diametrically opposed as to what the problem is. And so Republicans think that the big problem is is liberal platforms silencing conservative speech, and Democrats tend to think that the problem is too much um, uh, hate speech, disinformation, and incitement on the platforms. And there's not a lot of like wiggle room in between there. Um, when I was testifying in the Senate a month ago, Senator Ron Johnson asked us, I mean, it really was kind of remarkable. His question, he said, 
hey, you know, look what Facebook did. And they took down this group of moms who are against the vaccine, but they were against the vaccine. It was a support group because they were feeling vibrations as a result of the vaccine, right? It's like, why should Facebook have the power to take down this group uh, of uh, this support group for people who are like suffering from the vaccine? I like, I didn't even respond because I didn't want to like take that turn in the hearing, but it's like, that's the, that's his position. Whereas, you know, on the left, it's all about, you know, election fraud claims, COVID uh, disinformation, violent extremism and the like. And so, so they really don't, that's not a sophistication point. That's just about like the basic division among the congressmen, uh, members of Congress as to um, what the problem is. And, And one of the difficulties when, and you all know this because you're, you're in the midst of it too, is, you know, when you start having a conversation with policymakers about this, there's a kind of ADD quality to it where you start talking about something like hate speech or disinformation, then suddenly you're talking about political advertising and then you're talking about privacy violations, right? That people are not clear on what the problem is that they want to solve. And so one of the virtues of focusing first on transparency is that it potentially gives us an insight into all of those problems at once whether it's political bias of the platforms or the scale of disinformation and hate speech, um, transparency is a kind of condition precedent to grappling with any of that stuff. And so I, I think that that on the big questions like national privacy legislation, like some of the taxation issues and even reg- regulating political advertising being another classic example here, the parties are actually far apart. They, you know, they're, they're united in their antipathy toward big tech, but not much else. Uh, and so that's why, you know, something like the transparency legislation, it, it could uh, appeal to all sides. And at least that's my hope. Yes, I'm, uh, it certainly does seem like real progress to get the, the bill introduced that I'm I'm hopeful to, but it does seem like there's also a long way to go. I'm reminded of that quote about second marriages, that they are the triumph of hope over experience, um, given how many bills have been introduced and not passed <laughs> uh, in recent years. But we will keep our fingers crossed and hope that the next time we have you on the show is to celebrate the successful passage. So thanks very much, Nate, for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Kara Schillen, and our producer is Jen Pachi Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon.com. As always, thanks for listening.